Paul, writing to this group of believers in Rome, in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, writes these words. For whatever was written in former days was written, listen to what it's for, it was written for these things, for your instruction, so that you would know how to live your life, and it would accomplish as you live your life, this written word, that through endurance and through encouragement through the Scriptures, we might have hope. And so this morning, we're going to do as we always have, and what the church has been doing for several thousand years. We want to proclaim the truth of God's Word. And as we proclaim the truth of God's Word, this is what will happen. We will get instruction for life. How do we see how to live out our lives accurately? As we see that, God does two things, Paul says there. There's an endurance quality. There's a persevering quality, a lasting quality when our instruction for our life is grounded in God's Word. It's not grounded in our feelings. If it's grounded in our feelings, they last for a little bit, connected to the emotions. But if our instruction is grounded in the truth of God's Word, there's an enduring factor connected with that. That enduring factor allows us to see we can walk through struggles, and so it brings encouragement to us, ultimately leading to the reality of this, that we see we have this great hope, because of the promises that God has made in His Word to us. So we are currently in a series in, in the book of First Peter, and we've entitled it, A Hope That Changes Everything. And it is connected to First Peter 1, verse 3, that says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope, not a dead hope, but a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable. It is undefiled, it is unfading. And this inheritance, Peter says, is kept in heaven for you. And then he says, who through faith are being guarded for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, he says, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by the fire may be found a result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then Peter says these words, though you do not now see him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and is filled with glory because you are obtaining the outcome of your faith which is the salvation of your souls. So we're talking about this hope that comes, and it is deeply connected and grounded in the written Word of God because the written Word of God is the heart of God in a text for us so that you and I can know God's purposes for us. So we're going to continue today to talk in this theme that's in chapter 3 that's really kind of the theme running all through First Peter is how do you deal with suffering? Peter's writing to a group of believers who have been under persecution. They have lost things. They've kind of had to resettle in, in an area, in five different areas in Asia Minor. And Peter is writing to them. Let's connect last week and this week because both of them have to do with suffering. Last week was our suffering. This week we're going to talk about the implications of the suffering of Christ. So First Peter chapter 3, verse 13. This is what we looked at last week through 17. He writes, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And then he tells them, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But here's what you do. But in your hearts, 
honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. And have a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And then 18 through 22, let's read 22. We're going to read it all, but we're going to deal with verse 18 today um, because there is so much depth that's in there. So he connects here. Hostile world is against you. You are suffering. You're going to be slandered. And then he's going to remind us about Jesus. Verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So we're going to take the next two weeks and walk through those five verses, 18 through 22, and look at what has come to us and the glory that is connected to Jesus. So today what we're going to do is we're going to take our time, spend all of our time in verse 18. And there's some incredible truths about the glory of Jesus in verse 18. I teased in the first service last week, uh, Ryan Phillips said, man, during your sermon last week, I just felt like I needed to stand up and shout and dance. And so we challenged him during this week's sermon if he would do that and he wimped out once again this morning and did not dance and celebrate but I think by the end today you and I will be reminded again of why there is so much joy connected to our salvation we were so hopeless and God has done such an incredible thing through Christ and on the cross what what has been done for us that I believe it will cause us today to have great great joy in what has been done for us and so we're going to continue with this theme of How do you deal with suffering? And we're going to learn a lot from Jesus today. So let me remind you and I of this. His death is the most significant death that has ever happened in the history of the world. For in his death, something significant took place in in that he bore our sin so that you and I would not have to carry our sin anymore. That he carried our sin and what we do is we place our faith and trust in what he has done for us and it frees us to not have to work for anything but to rest in the finished work of what he has done and we will see today that there is an unbelievable great glory that has come i also want to remind us this morning before we walk through verse 18 of this we our fleshly nature as believers in the west because we are not really under hardly any kind of persecution There is a desire for us that everything connected to our faith is grounded in comfort. But when you read the Old Testament and the New Testament and you read church history, so many believers have had to walk with God through something called suffering, that they have been slandered for their faith, they have been ridiculed, they have been lied about, and it's not really anything new for us, for this is how Jesus was treated. Jesus only did what was God honoring, what was God praising, what was good for people, and that ended up for him in his life is it cost him his life 
when he died on the cross. And so we will be reminded today that Jesus' victory over death and his victory through suffering now becomes our victory. And there's incredible joy with it. I have a picture that Carl's going to put up on the screen here that kind of illustrates kind of where we are. Just kind of take a look at that for a moment. Our flesh longs for the top picture. You know, I, I want to love Jesus. I want to walk with Jesus. But, but can I just have the biting edge about the gospel? Can it be, you know, something I can buy at Toys R Us? You know, and can, can I just be brought to in a box at my door? Or do we want the real gospel, which is the bottom picture? That it's real life. It can be terrorizing. But what a life to live because of the salvation that we have been given in Christ. So we're going to long for one of those two. We're going to long for the top picture, or we're going to long for the bottom picture, and we want the bottom picture. Trust me, we want the bottom picture, because the top picture is just artificial. It's playing church. It's fake. There's nothing real to it, but if you live in the bottom picture, you've got to pray, because that's a real T-Rex, and it can bite. And so Peter is writing about real life faith and how do you deal with it so as we begin this morning i want to read some scripture to you and i want to remind you and i of the suffering of christ and then we're going to walk through verse 18 i'd love for you to follow along with me you can turn to matthew chapter 27 and we're just going to look at some of the last hours of jesus's life because i think we need to be reminded of his suffering and what that suffering means to us matthew chapter 27 verse 24 and then we'll get to 1 Peter 3, verse 18 in a moment. So let's be reminded of the suffering of Jesus. Matthew 27, verse 24. Now when Pilate, Jesus has been arrested. Now when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and he washed his hands before the crowd, said, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the pe people answered, His blood be on us. They have no idea what they're crying. His blood be on us and on our children. And then it says in 26, Then Pilate released for them Barabbas, and then he had Jesus scourged and delivered him to be crucified. Now look at verse 27 of Matthew 27. So then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered, gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him of his clothes. And they put a scarlet robe on him. And they twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head. And then they put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And then they spit on Jesus. And they took the reed that was in his hand and they struck him on the head. Another talked about that they had blindfolded him. They struck him and said, Hey, why don't you prophesy and tell us who it is that hit you? Verse 31 says, And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and they put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Look at verse 32. And they went out and they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they'd offered him a um, wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And the reason he wouldn't drink it is this. When Jesus hung on the cross, he had to bear all of the pain. He had to, he had to bear all of it. Gall was something that numbed the pain, and so Jesus refused it because when he bore our sin, he had to bear it all. He had to feel it. It had to be there. It had to be present, so he refused to drink it. Verse 35, and when they had crucified him, 
they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And then they sat down and they kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. When you get to Luke's gospel in, in chapter 22, it said, Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They blindfolded him and kept asking, Prophesy who it is that struck you. And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. And then Luke, in Luke 23, 32, talks about the mocking. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, where they crucified him, the criminals, one on his right and one on his left, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is... Christ of God, his chosen one. And then the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was also this inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. Luke twenty three thirty nine says, One of the criminals who hanged also with him railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And then when you get to Mark's gospel in fifteen thirty three, it says this, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, hey, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, and they put it on a reed, and they gave it to Jesus to drink, saying, wait, let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry, and he breathed his last. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing Jesus on the cross saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Now, I wanted to read all that to us this morning, something that we're very familiar with for this reason. I wanted to remind us this morning of this. Jesus' death was real. This was a physical suffering. It was a physical suffering that led to a real death. He wasn't breathing anymore. There were no brain waves. There was no heartbeat. There was no blood pumping through the body. Jesus physically, literally died. And his suffering led to that. And we're going to see today in the text why that took place and why it causes us to have this great love for the cross. Now go with me now. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. It's time for sermon number 2. Are you all ready? All right, sermon 2 is here. First thing I want us to see this morning is the satisfying and sufficient sacrifice of Christ. So here's what he says in the first part of chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also, some of your translations may say died. If you go back to the very oldest manuscripts in the Greek of the New Testament... Um, scholars would tell you you can't really differentiate between these two words. Suffered, it's an okay word. If your translation says died, it's, it's the same idea. For Christ suffered, for Christ died for once. Christ died, died or suffered once for sins. So let me talk about this word once for a moment because there's so much significance connected with it. There has never been a death like this. 
His sacrifice is the most unique event in the history of the world. Nothing before it, nothing after it could ever compare in love and magnificence and power and beauty and mercy and grace and tenderness. Nothing is a more beautiful expression than what took place on the cross, even in the midst of the cruelty. His sacrifice was the long-awaited sacrifice that Israel and the world had been waiting for. At the time of the Passover in the first century, let me tell you this. Every year at the Passover, 250,000 lambs were slain every week in the Passover. They had been doing this for centuries. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sinned. They hear God coming. They sew fig leaves together. They're hiding, trying to cover up their nakedness. God comes to the garden. Their works to cover up their nakedness was not adequate. So Genesis 3 tells us God took animal skins and he covered their nakedness. This was God's work. Therefore, there in the garden already was a prophetic picture that innocent life would shed its blood and lose its life to cover the shame and nakedness of our sin. And from Genesis 3 until AD 70 when the temple was destroyed and throughout the wilderness, all of this animal sacrifices, all of this blood, put them all together, they could never add up to being able to take care of the sin of man. Every year they had to do this. Throughout the year they had to make sacrifices if there was some sin that was made. His on the cross was not something that was to be repeated. It is something that was one of a kind. It was unique. As a matter of fact, in the Greek, in Vine's New Testament commentary, says this. This word once means this. It's the Greek word hapox, and it means this. Perpetual validity that does not require repetition. So in other words, when Jesus died on the cross... Moving forward and also rescuing those from the Old Testament because faith is only in Jesus. Salvation is only found in Him. Old Testament saints looked forward by faith to the coming of the Messiah. We look to Jesus who has already come and we are living on this side of that. He is the one that brings salvation. He does the work and it was done on the cross. But this word here means this. Once, it means from there forward, it didn't need to happen again. Now, some of you grew up with a Roman Catholic background. The Catholic Mass is blasphemous. And here's why. Every week at the Mass, the Mass does this. It is a re-crucifying, re-sacrificing again of Jesus. That is not what the Scripture teaches The Scripture teaches this was a once and for all, a moment in time on the cross, the cross as the altar, Jesus as the Lamb of God. It is a one-time event. It is not to be repeated. It's not to, okay, I need to do this again. Jesus, could you die again? No, it was so great because of who He is and the purity and the holiness of Him. It only needed to happen one time. Therefore, here's what it means. We don't redo it, we retell it. 
And we tell it again and again and again and again. And I have the privilege this morning of proclaiming it out loud today. You have the privilege of hearing it again. That when Jesus died on the cross, that death was holy, fully, completely sufficient, satisfying to the Father. There is not anything to be added to it. We don't mix anything with it. It was absolutely pure. So it is not to be redone, but it is to be retold. Listen to some of these verses once for all. Peter says, For Christ also suffered, for Christ also died once for sins. Romans 6.10 For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, Paul says. Hebrews 7.27 He has no need, speaking of Jesus, like the high priest, the high priest had to do this. They had to offer sacrifices daily, first for their own sins, the high priest did, and then for the sins of those he was helping. And then he speaks of Jesus, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Hebrews 9.28, so Christ, having been offered once, once, to bear the sins of many. Hebrews 10.10, and by that, Will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all? Hebrews 9, 26 and 20 through 28 mentions the word once three times. Listen to this. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. And, and the writer of Hebrews is saying, no, we don't repeat this. We don't redo this. It was once and all. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself and just as it is appointed for a man to die once and after that comes judgment so Christ having been offered once one time to bear the sins of many will appear a second time not to deal with sin but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him he did this once and he put it away, there is no need for another sacrifice. It was fully satisfying to the Father. And so the first thing we are to see this morning, Peter wants to remind us, hey believers, you're suffering persecution. You're wrestling with this. But I want to remind you, Jesus also suffered. And he suffered in such a way that he was suffering not for his sins, but he was suffering for the whole world's sins. So that's what Peter says there. For Christ also suffered or he died once, one time, uniquely, not to be repeated, the most incredible thing that could ever be done. And he did so, secondly, for sins, and he becomes the sin bearer. He died for sins. And as he was hanging on the cross, it was through no fault of his own, of anything that he had done, our sin led him there. And watch this. The purpose of the cross, the significance of the cross, is that sin had to be dealt with in the most drastic way, and that was God himself was the only one that could satisfy the demands. And so Jesus, as God in flesh, died on the cross you and I, because of sin, had no hope. Sin just separates. It's devastating. And on the cross, Jesus brings us 
from being separated and alienated by faith in him, he brings us into a relationship with him. And so for God to to offer salvation and for us to be reconciled to God, something incredibly drastic had to happen to deal with sin that would satisfy the justice demands that the Father required. And Jesus is the only one who has ever been qualified or ever will be qualified. And he has done this once for all, and he did it for sins. Now listen to me. There's confusion in the Western church today. Jesus didn't die to improve our personality. Jesus didn't die to make us good. Jesus died to raise us to life. We were dead in our sins with no hope. We couldn't breathe spiritually. We were separated. And he died to raise us to life. And as he did that, he bore our sins. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And by his wounds, you have been healed. So he bore our sins and he became the sacrifice for us. This sacrifice is so amazing that we saw in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, that it says this, that angels long to look at salvation. They marvel at salvation. And angels don't understand salvation because they've never experienced salvation. And so what happens is they were there present the day that Satan rebelled in heaven and was cast from heaven, took a third of the angels with him. They were there and knew what happened in the garden when Adam and Eve decided we're going to kind of do our own thing. They were present. They were there the day Christ hung on the cross And they were there when people came into salvation. The the angels were around when the Spirit came at Pentecost and people began to come into faith and the church was born. And the Scripture says, according to Peter, that angels are so fascinated in it. This word, long to look, means they lean in and lean down and they look at it and they are amazed at salvation. Our salvation is so beautiful that it is the wonder of angels and it is the scorn of the demonic. They hate the cross. They hate it. And yet the holy angels are an unbelievable wonder about the beauty of what has been done for us on the cross. His death for our sins is the greatest thing that has ever been done. Listen to some of these. I just quoted you, 1 Peter 2.24. This is Romans 8.3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, listen to this, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for our sins, Paul says. Hebrews 10.5 talks about all of this stuff, uh, about, about Christ coming for our sins and, and dying for our sins. 1 Corinthians 15.3, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, Paul said, that Christ died for our sins. That's the first priority, he says. I received this. Galatians 1.3, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. So here's what Peter says in verse 18. For he, he suffered, Christ died once for our sins. He became the sin bearer. In his body, he took this on. And it communicates to us that Jesus is the most 
beautiful one, most magnificent one, most pure one that we are to look to, and the only one that we can find life in. Y'all remember in Matthew chapter 16, Peter makes this unbelievable confession. He's talking to the 12, and he says, hey, who's everybody saying that I am? And they say, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And then Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter in that moment says, you are the Christ, you are the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon of Barjona. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. My Father revealed that to you. And then Jesus begins to tell them, listen, we're going to go to Jerusalem and it's not going to go well for me. And Peter has such a problem with that that he pulls Jesus aside and says, we're going to have a talk. I don't like this Jesus suffering stuff. We're not going to go. You're not going to suffer. And Jesus tells him, get behind me, Satan. And now we come to this letter. In Matthew chapter 16, he doesn't like the suffering Jesus. In 1 Peter 3, he loves the suffering Jesus because he understands I have no hope and no mercy and no grace if there's no suffering Jesus. And so it leads Peter here to just exalt the Lord and understand. He died for my sins. He died for my sins. And his suffering for the sins is totally unprecedented that God would come and die for our sins. This is something that nobody else could do. And so Jesus did it. So look at the screen. His suffering led to victory that now becomes our victory because it was the sole satisfying sufficient sacrifice. He becomes the sin bearer. And then Peter writes this. He gives a little bit better definition of bearing sin. Dying for our sin. He said this, the righteous for the unrighteous or the just for the unjust on the cross the lord jesus atoned for sins by suffering and taking on the punishment that was our place now i want to point to the cross over here this is what we deserved we deserve this we deserve to die because our rebellion we we deserved everything that was coming at us for the wrath of god But when Jesus willingly embraced this role, I I am the sacrifice. I'm the one. We read that in 1 Peter chapter 1. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last days for the sake of you who are believers in God, so that your faith and your hope are in Him. So when He hung on the cross, He took our place that was rightfully ours. We deserve to be there, but He bumped us out of the way and followed the Father's will all the way that He took our place. It's called substitutionary death. Scholars also call it a vicarious death. It means to die on behalf of someone else. And so Peter says here, listen, when He died for our sins, this once in a lifetime, once in a history, once never to be repeated again, one-time kind of thing. He died for our sins, not for the rescuing of our personalities, but to bring us to life and to give us salvation. And it's the righteous stepping in for the unrighteous. And it is such an amazing love. I just want to shout it today. Listen to what John wrote. 
1 John 4.10. In this is love. This is what love is, John said. 1 John 4.10. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us. You want to know the unbelievable reality in the world? It's not that you and I get to love Him. It's that a holy God loves us. And so he says, not that we loved God, but that He loved us. And He gave this unbelievable proof of it that He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And our sufferings are not like His, for our sufferings have come about because we have done certain things or maybe other sinners have done something and sometimes we deserve it. But His sufferings have come because He stepped in to take our place. There would be no suffering to Jesus if we had not sinned. The Bible over and over affirms the righteousness and the purity of Jesus to be the one who could step in and take our place. When the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, Surely, certainly, this man was innocent. It's Luke 23, 47. 1 John 2, 1 says this, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's righteous. And we are sinful, separated from God. And he stepped in to take our place. One righteous man for a world of unrighteous people. And I want to remind you and I this morning of this. He wasn't forced to do this. He embraced it. Listen to these words, John 10, 14 and following. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold and I must bring them in also and they will listen to my voice so they will be one flock, one shepherd. Listen to what he says here, verse 17. For this reason the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again and no one takes my life from me but I lay it down of my own accord. And I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And all of this, the substitutionary death of Jesus, should lead you and I to worship. Should lead you and I to be broken. Should lead you and I to be humble. For he alone is righteous. We know this verse. Let's hear it again. For our sake... For our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. All this took place on the altar of the cross on Calvary. In the Old Testament, this was not something new. The Old Testament gave a picture about this. In the Old Testament, there's something called the burnt offering and the sin offering. I want to read these to you just real briefly. Listen to this. This is the burnt offering in Leviticus 1.3. If his offering is a burnt offering from the Lord, he shall offer a male sheep or goat without blemish, and he shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand, so the, the person bringing the, 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 the lamb brings it, he lays his hand on the head of the burnt offering, the animal, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. And then that person laying on it brought that shall kill the bull before the Lord. And then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and they throw the blood against the sides of the altar 
that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. That was the burnt offering. Here's the sin offering, very similar wording, but there were different purposes. Leviticus 4.27, if any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, and he realizes his guilt or the sin that he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring for himself an offering of a goat, a female without blemish, for his sin which he has committed. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering, and then he kills the sin offering in the place of the burnt offering. And the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering and pour out all the rest of its blood at the base of the altar. And then it talks about the fat shall be removed and the fat removed from the peace offerings and the priest shall burn it on the altar for a pleasing aroma to the Lord and the priest shall make atonement for him and he shall be forgiven. And you're probably going, man, that's boring. Unbelievable beauty here. Listen to this. The sin offering, when the person who brought that for their sin placed their hand on that animal, It was a picture of all of the sickness and the vileness of the sin was being transferred to the substitute from the person who did to the lamb. So that was what the sin offering was. All of it transferred, all the sin transferred to the substitute, the sacrifice. The burnt offering was different. All of the purity and the virtue of the animal that was brought that was spotless was transferred to the one who was offering the sacrifice. It was a picture that they were getting. The, the sinner, not perfect, brought that to honor the Lord and all of the virtue was being brought back. Now watch this. On the cross, Jesus became both of those. Watch. In his substitutionary death, his vicarious death, stepping in on our behalf, as he died on the cross, he took all of the sin, all of the guilt, all of, all of it, he took on himself. And now in salvation, every bit of his righteousness gets offered to those of us who come to the cross to worship who are not perfect. This is what he does. So this is the picture of what he did. So when, so when Peter writes here, the righteous for the unrighteous, he's talking about this unbelievable reality that we get his righteousness even though we're not righteous. And he gets all of our vileness and depravity. He took it all on the cross. Does that not make you want to shout today? It does me. He took it all. And then in return, it's not that this amazing thing that I love God. It's amazing today that God loves us. And that He gave His Son as a propitiation for our sins. You see, the blood of Christ can both cleanse cancel and cover our sin that's the power that was there in the old testament ritual the sacrifice died and it never lived again but with christ he died he rose again he lives again he ascended and he is coming back again to reign and to rule for all of eternity and when he comes back again he will never be sacrificed again he's coming back and he will speak and he will slay his enemies and if that wasn't good, then Peter says this. For he, Christ, Christ, suffered or died once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. This is beautiful. 
Not only did he remove our sin and our salvation, he also bore our sin and he takes our sin away. In John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist was with some of his disciples and Jesus came walking by and it says this, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the one who's going to take away the sin of the world because he's going to take on the the sin and his body's going to take it and he's going to take it away. And those who come to faith in him, he will take their sin, he'll cast it as far as the east is from the west and you will enter into relationship with him and you will be reconciled listen to these words romans 5 10 for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to god by the death of his son how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life and more than that we also rejoice in god through our lord jesus christ through whom we have also now received reconciliation Colossians 1.19 says this, And he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. 2 Corinthians 5.18 All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself. Listen to this amazing thing. Not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. He does not count our sin against him. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. And so then Paul says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The fact that he can bring us to God indicates that he has access to God. He has the power, he has the authority to bring us to the Father. You cannot bring someone to someone if you don't have access. So let's talk about this word bring for a moment. Back in the first century, in the latter part, A.D. days and B.C. days, there was somebody called the introducer, and they worked in the king's court. And here's what their role was. If you wanted to have a a meeting with the king, the introducer is the only one who had the authority under the king to bring you into the king's court so that you could speak to the king, listen to the king talk, be in the presence in the throne room of where the king is. They were called the introducer. This word in the Greek, bring, is that word that described that person who had the authority to bring somebody into the presence of the king. Guess who Jesus becomes now? He becomes the introducer who brings us into the presence of the Father. So much so that it sounds like this. Hebrews 4.14 Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us then hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet he was without sin. So then here's what he says. Because this has been done for us, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. How in the world does that happen? Well, that happens because, watch, for Christ suffered for once for our sins. The righteous 
for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He might introduce us, bring us in. We have access because Jesus brings us into the court. In the Old Testament, Aaron and his sons were the only ones who got to go closely in. In the Old Testament, remember the temple? Jews could only go a certain far. Women, women had, to, had their own section. There was only so far in the temple that you could go. But when Jesus died on the cross and that temple veil separating the Holy of Holies was opened up, it just communicated this. Hey, everybody has access who has a relationship with me. And you draw near, not doing this. I'm going to go back here. Look at all these back row people back here. Some of the back row. Back row Baptist. Back row people back here. Here's what a lot of people think. We do things in our life where that's there and maybe we stay connected to church but in our mind we think we'll never draw near again because of what we've done. Ross says this because Jesus was the substitutionary he says this no you don't stay away I've made a way for you to come near so you come near you don't stay away far away it's like the prodigal son I use this illustration all the time Prodigal son in the distant country realized, man, I had blown it, and it was good at my father's house. I'm going to go back, and I'm going to ask my father, can I be a servant, because I've blown it as a son. So he memorizes a speech, and he goes back. And when he gets there, the father sees him, and the father runs and grabs him, embraces him, kisses him, hugs him, kill the fatted calf, let's put some shoes on the feet, let's put a ring on the finger, let's put a robe on him. And the son, it says, is memori- speaking his memorized speech. I have done so bad, I can't be a son again. And the father's only communicating, no, you are a son. Do you notice what I'm doing? I love you, I'm embracing you. You're my son. And I want to tell you today, I don't know what you've done in your life, and I bet in a room like this, there's some pretty heinous things in secret and in public that have been done. And if you've come to know Jesus, he tells you, you don't stay away. You come right there. And you come as close as you want to come. Because he's the one who brings us to God. And if that's not beautiful enough, here's an unbelievable biblical doctrinal truth. He is spiritually, eternally alive forever and ever and ever. The next part of verse 18 says this, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So when he died on the cross, listen to me, his body died. He's dead, but his spirit didn't die. Remember what some of his last words were? Into your hands I do what? I commit my spirit. Jesus' spirit didn't die. Listen, if Jesus' spirit was tainted by sin, there is no salvation. He can't die spiritually. Now, his body died as he became the perfect sacrifice that satisfied the demands of the Father. As a matter of fact, Jesus being in the flesh is so significant of a doctrine that there was a doctrine a bad doctrine, a false doctrine, heresy that was taking place in the first century that the Apostle John had to deal with. And so he wrote these words, 1 John 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, 
But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now listen to what he says. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. It was such a big deal to believe that Jesus came in a body. It was a really, really, really big deal. And when he died on the cross, he died in his flesh, bearing our sin. But his spirit was spiritually, eternally alive. His soul cannot be corrupted. Acts 2.27 For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. All right, we're going to close with this. Look at me. Listen, don't miss next week. You know, one of the beauties we have of two services is this, is you can serve one, attend one, serve one, attend one. You don't want to miss next week. I don't have time to go into it. But next week we're going to talk about after Jesus died on the cross, he went somewhere. And he went somewhere and he proclaimed. He went to prison to where these demons were kept and been kept there since the time of Noah. And he makes a proclamation of victory. We're going to kind of talk all about that next week. And we'll finish 19, 20, 21, and 22 next week. A couple more things. You read the book of Revelation. The consistent theme of Revelation is there is a lamb who was slain. 27 times in the book of Revelation, Jesus is referred to as a lamb. One time, John sees him, and he sees a lamb who has been slain. And I can't wait for this. We're going to get to heaven one day, and there's going to be this glorious, it's going to be this glorious place. It's going to be a place of light, and the glory of Jesus is going to light up the whole place. There will be no need of a sun or a moon because the glory of Christ is going to light it up. But I think we'll also see his scars. Can you not wait to see his scars? They'll be there in his feet, they'll be there in his hands, and likely his head from the crown of thorns. And we will see the one who died for us. It is the consistent theme in the book of Revelation. In chapter 5, he's seen as a lamb. And in chapter 22, verse 3, he's seen as a lamb in the city. Now, I brought something with me this morning. It's not going to mean anything to you. It means a lot to me. I grew up in Waco, Texas, and we moved to a new house probably when I was about four years old, and, and I love basketball. Uh, at one time, I was a great basketball player. You probably couldn't see it real now if you played me, but I'm, I'm just older and don't jump. I can jump about that high now, you know, so. But I loved basketball. We had a basketball goal that was my dad had built. It was one of those uh, poles, just a, a wooden pole and, you know, uh, backboard made out of plywood and I loved it I played on it all the time my parents decided to expand our driveway and the old basketball goals have to be torn down this was back in 1973 74 somewhere in there so I was a I was a young kid um, and so uh, day came all the steel had been played put down the concrete trucks had out in the street ready to back down the driveway to start pouring the concrete and 
And the last thing that needed to be done was the old basketball goal needed to be tor torn down. So they hooked it up to the back of this tractor and they <clears throat> tied a rope around the bottom of it and the tractor pulled off and the basketball goal kind of teetered and crashed down to the ground. And I was at the top of the driveway and, and uh, I jumped on my mongoose bike and rode away to my friend's house. I was crying, you know, my basketball goal was gone. I was mad at my dad and he had ruined my life, you know, he'd busted my basketball goal and well I didn't know this um, but my dad I've told you this before my dad ended up being my high school principal he was a principal at the time but he had uh, had the high school ag department make me a new basketball goal made of steel and it was pretty awesome I didn't know about it at the time so I went to my friend's house and spent the day and then decided uh, you know wanted to spend the night at my friend's house my parents said it's okay my mom brought me some clothes later and and I'd forgotten all about, you know, kids do, you know, one moment's so traumatic and then you just forget about it and you move on. And I forgot about it until I started riding my mongoose home. And we had a long hill down like this from my friend's house. It kind of came up like this and then you turned on our street. So I was coming down about this and about halfway up this hill here, I went, oh yeah, my basketball goal's gone. So I came up and turned and I'm, you know, pedaling down the street, finally catch the corner of our house and I look down in the driveway and my dad's on his hands and knees in the driveway and I look in there and this incredible goal that I didn't know had been being built was already put up in the concrete and my dad was on his hands and knees painting the lane the basketball lane the free throw lane for me and I'm 52 now and I still get emotional thinking about that story that my dad stayed up all night getting that together, painting that, sacrificing because he was, wanted to do good to his son. So yesterday, the basketball goal since put up in 1974, we had to take it down. My dad was done with it. Nobody plays anymore and it's in the way. My dad's in the flowers and he needs, <laughs> he needs his above ground pots and plants have to be put there. So my brother Doug and I, Shot the basket one more time. I dunked it barely. It's about eight and a half foot. I was barely able to dunk it because I can't jump anymore. And I thought, man, I've got to keep something of this. And I'm, this is going to go up in my office because there is lots of memories connected to this for me. Fun with friends. My dad used to hook up lights. I'd play at one o'clock in the morning. Our poor neighbors, I'm out there practicing free throws. And just a lot of incredible things connected with this and and I'm going to keep it and I hope my kids want it one day they probably won't but anyway <laughs> this was made in 1974 it's pretty pretty amazing to me about 2,000 years ago there's a symbol of our father's love for us this is a symbol of my father's love for me and it's that And there's nothing more significant today that you and I could grasp than this. For he suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. Being put to death in his flesh but being made alive by the Spirit in which he went and preached to those spirits who were in prison.
We must be the most cross-centered people on the planet. It must drive us. It must move us. We must be moved that it's amazing. Not that we can love God, and that's amazing, but it's amazing that God loves us. And it ought to just cause us to worship and the symbol of the cross ought to humble us. It ought to motivate us. It ought to move us to love righteousness. It moves us to go to the DR. It moves us to go to Mississippi. It moves us to go on mission. We, do you know? I don't know if you knew this. We're going to have about 100 people from our church, our small church, that are going to go on a mission trip this year. It's amazing. And I think the reason is this. We love His Word, His love's... His word says go, but I think we go because we've gotten this, that the cross demands us to not just to enjoy it, it demands us to go tell about it. It cannot be redone, but it must be retold. And it must be told over and over again. And so I've told it again today. You and I have heard it again today. What are we going to do with it? Are we going to just go, uh yeah, he died. Where are we going to go? He died. And God, I'm amazed, not that I can even sing to you today. I'm amazed that you will even let me. You love me enough to let me because you've given me access to just come right up to the throne and worship you. That is the beauty of our salvation. It's why y'all are going to the DR. Don't forget that. Y'all aren't going to do sports camp. You're going to tell this story. This is what you go to do. God loves people, and it's amazing. Are you amazed today? I'm amazed again today. So we're going to sing a song in a moment, and I'm not going to tell you what it is. You'll just have to hear it because the words are all about this, and it's, it's, one, of the, it's one of my favorites right now. And we just want to be reminded, and we want to sing about what has been done for us on the cross. Again, we're going to have symbols in our lives that mean something. And for me, this means a lot. But this is so much more important. I love this one. I love this one. Because in it, I was rescued. Let's pray.